You're listening to Jewish Matters with Rabbi Jonathan Feldman. Are you ready to introduce our heavy hitter speakers for the evening? Great to have you all here tonight. Thank you, Shanna, the uh, hostess with the mostest, great MC, and uh, my partner in this. Okay, so our speakers tonight, uh, Eli Verd Hazan will be up first, is the Director of Foreign Affairs for Israel's Likud Party. He's from Jerusalem and graduated with an MA in history from Hebrew U. He has also served as advisor to the Minister of Education and as parliamentary advisor to the chairman of the Likud faction and the coalition. Our uh, response, uh, and we categorize them as pro and anti-annexation, but we'll talk about even that is something we need to discuss. Uh, Professor Chuck Freilich is a former deputy national security advisor in Israel and longtime senior fellow at Harvard's Belfer Center. He teaches political science at Columbia, NYU, and Tel Aviv universities. He's the author of Zion's Dilemma, How Israel Makes National Security Policy, Israel, Israeli National Security, A Strategy for an Era of Change, and Israel and the Cyber Threat, How the Startup Nation Became a Global Cyber global cyber power. He has published numerous academic articles, more than 150 op-eds, and appears frequently on U.S., Israeli, and international TV and radio stations. So those are our speakers. Thank you, Eli and Chuck. And uh, let me introduce now our uh, moderator, Michelle Safin, who I had the privilege of working with as a colleague in New York at Manhattan Jewish Experience for two and a half years. And uh, now we're both here as well, thank God. She's a filmmaker and mediator, wrapping up her master's degree from Tel Aviv University in public policy. After receiving her degree from Northwestern University in communications in the Middle Eastern studies, she worked as an independent film producer in New York and at MJE. She is currently pursuing a career in conflict resolution and mediation. So take it away, Michelle. Thank you, Rabbi Feldman, and thanks, Jenna. Um, all right, so, so this is going to be a fiery debate. This is an emotional, complex, divisive topic, but it's actually not a debate, right? It is, but it isn't. Here's why it's not a debate. The goal of a debate is to win. It's to destroy your opponent, to come out on top. And that's not what we're doing here tonight. What we're going to do is something a bit different. It's called Machloket L'Shem Shemayim, Disagreement for the Sake of Heaven. So I was introduced to this concept by my professor, Rabbi Dr. Daniel Roth. And it's the idea of constructive conflict in Judaism, a Torah value of constructive conflict. What do we mean by that? It's both about why we disagree and how we do it. So, so why do we disagree? Why do we debate? Well, we, we don't argue for ego. We don't argue to try to win or to be right. We argue for a higher concern, a higher value of revealing truth and discovering the best path forward together. If you look at our tradition 
our our Jewish law halacha is recorded in debate format. So we have we have an answer. We go with one opinion, but we study the debate. We just we study the disagreement um, between Hillel and Shammai, for instance. And why do we do that? Because it's not just important to understand the outcome, the direction, the answer that we went with. It's important to understand how we got there, because through that disagreement, we reveal deeper truths, uh, Jewish values, and concerns and considerations that we want to take to to uh, subsequent conversations. All right, so then how do we disagree? That's why we disagree. That's our motivation. How do we do it constructively? Well, think of a chavruta pair. How do, how do uh, chavruta pair study Torah? With respect, with deep and active listening. We need to question our biases. So, for instance, confirmation bias, instead of trying to prove ourselves right, we need to try to disprove or reject the null hypothesis. Try to prove yourself wrong, and if you can't, then you might be right. Uh, we need to ask clarifying questions. And most importantly, this is really key, we need to approach the text or the problem in front of us with humility, with an acknowledgement that we individually in isolation, in isolation might not own, might not understand the whole truth. But that's something that we reveal together. So this conversation, what's our goal? Why are we doing this? What's our higher value? It's to reveal through discussion what is best for Israel, what is the right thing to do morally, legally, and strategically, and what's our method? How are we going to do this? Well, we're going to pretend that we're detectives. We're, we're solving a case together. We're joint problem solvers. We're not here to win. We're here to dig, to reveal, to uncover. All right. So that's what we're here to do. The format's going to be different than your typical debate. We're going to start with opening statements. Uh, each speaker is going to have seven minutes of uninterrupted time to uh, state their position. Then we're going to have two minutes of reflection. I'll explain each section when we get to it. Then we're going to do a joint detective work rebuttal. Um, and finally, we're going to have concluding statements and a Q&A. Okay. So for the opening arguments, seven minutes each, I will keep time. And if, each, if any speaker goes over more than 30 seconds, I'm going to cut in. Here's your question. To annex or not to annex. And in your, in your answer, please address the following, uh, following sub-questions. What are the legal, strategic, and ethical considerations? And what are the short-term and long-term ramifications of annexation, both uh, for security, economy, and diplomacy? And before we, uh, before we start, a note on terminology. Please address, what do you call this? Do you call this annexation? Do you call it extending sovereignty? Define your terms and explain why you're using them. Okay, so first up, pro-annexation. Ellie, are you ready? Yes, I'm ready. Can you hear me? All right. I will mute myself and seven minutes on the clock. Okay, first of all, thank you very much for giving me, giving me this opportunity to present uh, those who are in favor uh, of the what we call 
application of the Israeli law. For us, it is not annexation. Annexation is, this is something that you are taking and it is not belong to you. Judea and Samaria is part of the homeland, part of uh, Israel. Although there are some difficulties because we are living with another people here in the same land. So let's start by saying this. I would call uh, the deal of the century an opportunity of once in a lifetime. We have an opportunity, a golden opportunity that we don't want to miss uh, by uh, applying the Israeli law in some territories in Judea and Samaria, mainly in territory C. This is one thing. I want to start by a brief introduction, historical introduction. A lot of you know the details, but I want to give you the context. We've been trying to get a peace with the Palestinians for so many years. The first attempt was in 1937, it was completely failed. Then in 1947, in the year 2000, we all remember what happened after the Americans tried uh, to end the conflict. Uh, Intifada, Al-Aqsa Intifada, with a lot of casualties and people dead and things like that. Uh, and then in 2007 and later in 2014, in, in all those attempts, the Palestinians said no to any solution that was put on the table. It means that we need a creative solution, and I strongly believe that the, uh, applying the Israeli law in territory Syria is a good opportunity to create a new situation. Why I'm saying so? Because there are some Israeli citizens who live in Israeli territory, as far as we see it, and they are second-class citizens, and we strongly believe that they need to be equal. The only way to do it is to apply the Israeli law in these territories. Now, we know it is not perfect. It, it means that we have a lot of difficulties. But having saying that we are not going to uproot anyone from both sides, not the Israeli, not the Palestinian, uh, if you look back in history, you must try to uh, find a creative solution. For us, the deal of the century, it is uh, a creative solution and I hope that the Prime Minister Netanyahu will find a creative way in order to apply the Israeli law as soon as possible. As you know, we have a lot of difficulties, but usually those are the Israelis. We have a lot of difficulties, but most of the time we find solutions to an impossible uh, uh, questions. Now, I was asked about the international law. Yes, right now, there is no doubt about it. Most of the international community is against the sovereignty of the Israel, most against the Israeli sovereignty in those territories. But I want to remind you that according to the San, San Remo Conference, the British who get the mandate in 1920, um, their mission was more or less to create a national home for the Jews in the state of Israel, previously Palestine, and it is included Judea and Samaria as well. Now, in 1947, we have a new international law. We have the UN Resolution 181, which means that we needed to divide this land into two different uh, territories. And I want to emphasize one thing about Jerusalem. Not a lot of Israelis know that, but Jerusalem was supposed to be a, a city under UN control. We ended the independence war, and in the end, West Jerusalem was controlled by Israel, and East Jerusalem was controlled by Jordan. In fact, that was the new international law. We go into 1967, um, we have the Six-Day War, 
And again, we have a new situation again and again and again. Last time we saw that in 2005, Israel left Gaza completely until the last centimeter, as we call it, according to the international law. And what we've got in return, missiles, terror, and so on and so, on and so forth. So we strongly believe, if you speak about uh, strategic issues, we strongly believe that the application of the Israeli law in these territories, we must do it, no doubt about it. Moreover, if you go back in history, if you go back to 1967, there is what we call a loan plan. I guess Chuck knows a loan plan, and we should not forget that a lot of the ingredients of the deal of the century remind us of the loan plan. Uh, this is about it. Now, I was asked again and again and again, what would you do against the response of the international community? I want to remind uh, three things about it. First of all, when we uh, annexed the Golan Heights in 1981, it was a lot of criticism against us. No one truly believed that the Americans will recognize the Israeli annexation in the Golan Heights. And yes, we have a new reality. And you saw that, I mean, you experienced that in your eyes uh, about a year and a half ago. Let's speak about Jerusalem. Jerusalem, this is another, uh, um, another issue. No one really believed that the Americans would move the embassy. And then we have a new situation. We created a new situation. We told the world that we are not willing to give up over Jerusalem. This is the United Capital of Israel. And therefore, we have a new situation. Now, of course, we have the criticism of the Europeans. And by the way, in my job, I'm working a lot in the European Parliament. I'm working a lot with the German, French, British, who are not part of the European Union anymore. And I'm facing this uh, criticism. But I strongly believe that we must insist that this is our right to do it. Of course, they can get sanctions against Israel, but I truly believe that we can deal with those sanctions. What does it mean? As you know, the European Union is not one voice in a sense that there is a lot of disagreements inside the European Union itself. Prime Minister Netanyahu was very wise uh, to form a new policy of having a good relations with states such as Austria, Hungary, uh, the Baltic, and so on and so forth in order to divide the European voice against Israel. We saw that it is very uh, efficient in a sense that we are uh, creating a new reality that enables us to promote our ideology. More than that, look at the Arab states. Many years ago, if we would do a, this kind of step, I guess that the Egyptians would bring back their ambassador. They don't do it. Moreover, United Arab Emirates is, although they are against annexation, as they call it, they are looking for um, a new relationship with Israel, nevertheless that we have this kind of policy. Uh, and having said that, we truly believe that this is one thing. I'm going to have to cut you off. Sorry? I'm going to have to cut you off. We're 30 seconds okay. over. Unless you. you want to wrap up your last sentence. Last sentence. I do not ignore the interests of the Palestinians. According to the deal of the century, they have the possibility that after four years of negotiation to form their own Palestinian state. I hope they will accept all uh, the terms and they will go into their uh, independent life. Otherwise, they will stay under the Palestinian, sorry, under the Palestinian authority uh, in general. That was the last sentence.
Thank you so much. Um, well said. And Chuck, are you ready? I am. Good evening to everyone. And I will give you an extra 30 seconds as well. Are you ready? I Sorry. am ready. Raring to go. We are talking here not about application of sovereignty, but unilateral annexation. That is what pretty much every international law expert in the world calls it. Uh, the so-called, these um, words that are designed to cover the reality are by international law, unilateral annexation. But let's put the semantics aside because the real question is the issue itself. I must tell you, I spent many years of my life dealing, I was in the defense establishment, I was in the National Security Council for years. I don't know of any decision which was more poorly prepared, more half-baked than the current one. One of the potentially most momentous decisions in the history of the state of Israel, if something significant is done. We are now five days after the so-called target date, and Ellie and I and everyone else in the audience, and frankly, the prime minister of the state of Israel, have no idea what we're talking about. This started off as uh, all of the West Bank, then it was the Trump plans 30%, and then it was maybe the Jordan Valley and the three blocks and settlement blocks, and then it was the settlement blocks. And now most of the press speculation is that at most it will be something symbolic, not even that even that isn't uh, sure. This was predicated on the assumption that there was a unique opportunity. Uh, the Trump administration supported it. That turned out to be incorrect. They've uh, they've cooled. Uh, there was the assumption that this could be done despite the fact that Israel's in the midst of the worst economic and health crisis of its history. Remarkably, some of the strongest supporters, uh, excuse me, opponents today are the people on the hard right. Well, the only good news here is that it's probably not going to happen, or if it does, it's going to be a minimal move. I must say that the state of Israel is not a game of roulette in Las Vegas. It's not a crapshoot. This is not the way to make decisions. And I believe that all of us, whether we support or oppose this move, should simply be appalled by the decision-making process. Now, the problem isn't annexation itself. It's unilateral annexation. And I stress that because we all know that a few percent, at least, of the West Bank uh, will be annexed to Israel in any feasible peace agreement in the future. Doing it unilaterally um, and not as part of a negotiated settlement is really just another one in an endless series of steps which have produced a, uh, a creeping annexation of the West Bank over the years so that it is today questionable whether a two-state solution is feasible anymore in the future. Now, I'm not wed to the, to the two-state solution. I'm wed to one thing, and that is preserving the state of Israel as a predominantly Jewish and vibrantly democratic state. I'm not willing to compromise on that. Now, I must tell you, in 50 years of studying this conflict very closely, working it in the government, I have yet to hear any solution other than the two-state solution which meets our national goals of preserving a predominantly Jewish and democratic Israel, and which addresses the Palestinians' aspirations. It takes two to, for a tango. As a matter of fact, annexation 
may be the um, straw that broke the camel's back. This may be the demise of the two-state solution. And what that means is the beginning of the end of our dream, the Zionist dream of a Jewish and democratic Israel. We know what binational states look like. That's not what we want. It's uh, in the Middle East. A binational state is called Syria. It's called Iraq. I don't think that's what we want. Now, there are really two possibilities here. It's either going to be a significant annexation, and then it will lead to what I'm saying. It will lead to the demise of the Zionist dream, or it can be a small symbolic move. And then I have to ask you, what do we need that for? for even from the point of view of the supporters, we're in control of the territory in any event. No one was really contesting it anymore. The international community's attention, the attention of the Arab world had moved away from the Palestinian issue. We have shot ourselves in the, in the feet by refocusing international attention on something that we didn't want. The PA has already announced, PA, the Palestinian Authority, has already announced an end to security uh, cooperation, which has been critical to keeping terrorism as low as it's been in recent years. The IDF assessment has been that an annexation will lead to a significant uh, uptick in terrorism. Hamas is obviously going to respond. They've said they'll do so as it is. They've had a hard time maintaining the relative calm of recent months. So we're just playing into their hands. If there is a significant escalation in the West Bank and Gaza, it's going to be hard for Hezbollah and Iran to stay out. Uh, I don't think they want to get in, but do we really want to put them to the test? Or are we shooting ourselves in the feet again? Our relationship with Jordan and Egypt at best will suffer. Uh, this is a severe th challenge for both. For Jordan, it's a, particular, it's a potential threat to the stability of the monarchy. We will at best harm, maybe severely harm, our relations with the Gulf states. This dramatic strategic change which has taken place in recent years, why do we have to do that? We're shooting ourselves in the feet again. Uh, there will be sanctions from Europe and other parts of the international community. And as I said, even the United States, well, Mr. Trump has at best cooled to this. I don't think he's paying any attention and uh, intends to go forward with this now. And it is increasingly likely that in November, Mr. Biden will be elected. And so I must ask, is there anyone who benefits from this move? And the answer is yes. It's called Iran and it's called Hezbollah because we, from our own actions, divert attention away from them, from the nuclear issue, which is the number one issue, from um, Iran's attempts to set up base in Syria, from Hezbollah's mammoth rocket arsenal and arsenal and the growing precision project. This is a policy where, I'm finishing the sentence, where we have simply refocused the international attention exactly on the wrong issue and have shot, shot ourselves in the feet. Well said, thank you. Um, all right, so now we're going to move into something a little bit different. You won't usually see this in a debate. We're going to do some reflecting. So what's that? Your, our speakers are each going to take turns um, reflecting on what they heard from the other speaker. I want you to each say what you thought was the most interesting 
point the other one said. It could be something you've never thought of from that perspective before or just what you thought was the most well-argued point. Uh, Chuck, I'm going to have you respond first. I think, if I may, there were two primary points that Ellie said that I would like to address. One is the fact that he recognized that most of the international community is against this now. Well, the international community has been against it for 50 years, so nothing has changed. But why does he believe that this can be addressed? He said we can handle the sanctions. Uh, I was surprised by that. Uh, you know, so the other point I'll raise afterward. You asked for one. Okay, so you're the, the point that was interesting and new to you, or you appreciated that he recognized acknowledge that the international unit, uh, international community is also, uh, is mostly against this. Was there anything that he said that was new that you hadn't considered before? You considered it. Once or twice before, I imagine Ellie has also. <laughs> Ellie, your turn. Okay. Um, first of all, the argumentation, I know all the arguments of what Chuck had said. I mean, we live in this world, I would say, especially in the last, uh, I would say, months, ever since uh, the coalition agreement between Likud and Blue and White and the possibility that we will go into uh, application of Israeli law. Uh, there is nothing new, but I want to, I want to address one thing and to, or to ask. Many times the international community have threatened against Israel. By the way, before we established the state of Israel in 1948, even the Americans told us, don't do it, it is a dangerous uh, step, and we did it. In the end, when we determined something, our policy, we were very successful, except a few times, I believe. One of it is in 1957, when we needed to pull out of uh, Sinai. But most of the times, including the annexation of the Golan Heights, we were very successful. How come, or why does Chuck think that this time it's going to be different? And I want to refer to one thing, uh, I did not say that we, we will uh, deal with the sanctions. I said that the sanctions is not going to look as people think. For instance, I can tell you from the last uh, days, Europeans did not say to bring back the ambassadors, but they are going to harm some of the, uh, I would say, joint programs with Israel. So that okay, is- So we're going to hold on your question that you asked him, uh, which is a good one. We'll get to that. But first, I'm going to force you to do it because uh, because Chuck did it, what was the most well-argued point that he made? Even if Sorry? it wasn't new to you, what was the most well-argued point that Chuck made? Even if nothing was new to you, what did you, what did you think was well-argued? Wow, I'm so sorry. I don't think so. I mean, I tell you the truth, Chuck, I really appreciate your attitude. I have a lot of arguments with commanders for Mefakdim Leman Bitron Israel. In the end, I just look back. Almost everything that those commanders who are really appreciated from the Israeli army, they, they gave their life for me. But everything they said in also agreements, in the disengagement, by the way, I voted in favor of the disengagement in the Likud referendum. I feel so sorry for that. But they were completely failed. I mean, they had a lot of mistakes. And I'm so sorry with all do appreciate you. I didn't find something new or something that I can agree with. Okay. All right. But well, though, though, that's I okay. To... 
I want You're to Israeli, so I'm going to accept. I'm going to accept it. In America, I, I, I wouldn't let this fly, but you're Israeli, so. I want. I want to emphasize one thing. I'm uh, so we're happy. gonna one minute, unless it's unless you've thought of something that you really liked from his argument. I'm gonna hold for a minute. Yeah. Okay. okay. So we're gonna move into instead of doing a traditional rebuttal, uh, where you counter the points made. Instead, I want you to ask each other clarifying questions. If there was something that you heard um, from the other's arguments that you have a problem with, that you want to challenge, I want you to take this time to ask each other and um, and then we'll give you a chance to each respond. So uh, Chuck, can I, are you ready to go first with that? Ask uh, question, follow-up questions or challenges to the points that Ellie made. Well, there was one thing that Ellie said that I certainly agreed with, and that is that the Palestinians have rejected pretty much every possible solution. They aren't an easy uh, partner, adversary, enemy, call them whatever you wish. That's a tragedy. Unfortunately, the Ribbonoshel Alam decided that they're our neighbors. We don't have a choice about that. Now, the question in history, I mean, Ellie also said correctly, in, in 48, if we had listened to the world, we wouldn't have declared the state. That's another thing that I agreed with. There's a difference. It's over 70 years. We've got a state. Part of having a state is the ability to try and shape one's destiny and not have it forced on oneself. Now, my question for Ellie, how do you prevent the emergence of a, of a binational state. You said just C. Just area C is somewhere between 200 and 300,000 Palestinians. That's not the official number, that's the real number. And the real problem, or it's one of the real problems, is that it, it might start with something limited, but it may not end that way, and you don't know it. Maybe it won't. Maybe the, we won't lose control. Maybe we won't have to go in and reannex the entire territory because there'll be an explosion of violence. Maybe that won't happen, but it could. Wise decision makers do not put themselves in the position where they can, by their own act, lead to the demise of their state. Thank you. Okay, so Ellie, you got the question. How yeah. do you prevent the binational state? First of all, I support the deal of the century fully. As I already mentioned, according to this deal of the century, the Palestinians have the possibility to create their own state. If not, I truly believe that the Palestinians must run their lives under the Palestinian Authority. Let me tell you something, Chuck. There are some voices in my party who are in favor of the one-state solution. I'm against it. I'm completely against it. I truly believe that the majority of the Likud members is against it. Moreover, I must tell you frankly that if those who support the one-state solution will become a majority, I will leave Likud, as simple as it, it, as it sounds. Because one-state solution means one thing, the end of the Jewish and democratic state. In that case, we agree completely. I truly believe that because, as I already explained in the first segment, that because of the new reality, because having the fact that we have more than 400,000 settlers in those territories, I, I strongly believe that we must create a new situation, apply the Israeli law on those territories, and the Palestinians will be under 
the Palestinian Authority. I strongly believe in it. That is my answer. And I don't believe we will go into the two states, uh, into the one state solution in any case. One point that came to my mind that in one scenario, the Palestinians may join to Jordan, but you know, this is something hypothetical. And I don't want to refer to it right now because it's unrealistic right now, but this is one of the situations that I can see. Great, thank you. Um, now, your turn. Do you have a follow-up question, something that you want to challenge that you heard Chuck say, and then he'll be able to answer? Yes, I'll do it very short. And by the way, I'm asking every, every member of the commanders for Israel, what is your final deal? How do you see the future? Having, uh, taking the fact that we are not going to uproot anyone, and you know that after the disengagement, the possibility of uprooting Jews from their home, it's almost impossible. On the other hand, people like me is against uprooting Arabs from their homes. So what is your final deal or final, I would say, peace or arrangement? Well, first of all, I was glad to hear that Eli is against a one-state solution. And he may very well be right that a majority in Likud is against that. And yet that's exactly what you are doing. And that's what the Likud party has been leading to for decades. Now, this is, again, I, I've been using the expression of shooting ourselves in our feet. This is simply the blind leading the blind. And if you understand that this is leading to a one-state solution, then you should, or that you are against that, then you should be doing everything in your power to prevent it. Now, I said before, and I'll say again, the Palestinians have rejected every possible solution. The question is then is how you preserve the conditions for an agreement with them in the future. To answer your question, Ellie, a two-state solution in the future, uh, not take steps by ourselves, by our own hand, preclude the possibility of reaching a two-state solution, which is what annexation does. And with again, with our own hand, creating a one-state reality. And you have to be absolutely blind not to see that that's what we're doing. Now, Ellie said correctly, there are about 400,000 uh, settlers in the West Bank. Well, a two-state solution, a reasonable one, uh, the kind that people spoke about, leaves 80% of them in Israeli territories, and nobody is talking about moving 400,000. And since terminology is important, we're not talking about uprooting anybody. We're asking people, maybe 20% of the population, to move a few kilometers, in some cases, maybe a few hundred meters. But maybe it's a few kilometers. Now, most of the people in this audience, myself included, actually got up and made Aliyah once. And we moved thousands of uh, kilometers or miles. So let's not make a big deal about this. If you want it, uprooting, oh, that sounds horrible. Moving with full compensation is not a big deal. Now, Ellie, also, again, uh, let me give you credit for the candor. You mentioned the possibility uh, that maybe the Palestinians will establish their state in Jordan. That is the right wing's endgame. Most people don't say it. The idea is to create a situation in which maybe there'll be a, be a big outflux of refugees from the West Bank to Jordan. It will create instability, topple the monarchy, lead to the establishment of a Palestinian state there. Well, the Palestinians say that they don't want their state just in Jordan. 
they might be willing to take that plus the West Bank, but they don't forgo their demands to the West Bank. And Jordan, most people consider to be a strategic partner of Israel of supreme importance. Do we really want to throw that out the window? Thank you. So what I heard you saying is that the deal that you want to answer his question was two-state solution in the future, and that now it's about preserving those conditions. Yeah, but I want, with your permission, to emphasize one thing out of the rules. I did not say sending the Palestinians into Jordan. I said that territories who would not be under Israeli law will join to Jordan. It is very important. Okay, thank you for clarifying that. All right, well, this was really, really interesting. Um, thank you for playing along and following the rules as, as best you, you could. Um, what I think is most interesting is that you, you both agreed that you don't want a one-state solution. You're both still attached to the idea of two states. And what you seem to disagree over is whether or not this plan right here on the table is going to remove the possibility of a two-state solution, right? That's where you disagree. So before, is that correct? Did I, both, would both of you agree with that? You disagree over whether or not this destroys the possibility of two states. But for both of you, it's important. So before we go to concluding remarks, I just want to bring up the idea that there are perspectives here that are missing from the debate, and maybe you could address these uh, in your concluding remarks. If not, we'll get to them in the Q&A, hopefully. But I think it's important to acknowledge that represented here, we don't have any Palestinians. We don't have anyone working for human rights organizations. We also don't have anyone who's living, uh, as far as I know, in the territories that we're talking about. Um, we don't have anyone, and there's a growing movement, of people who are against the annexation plan uh, or extending sovereignty plan because they believe they, they want to want state solution and they don't want the Trump plan. Um, so if you could acknowledge some of those perspectives, some of those outside perspectives in your concluding remarks, that would be great. Uh, we need to keep the concluding remarks very tight because we are ending soon and we want to give our audience a chance to ask their questions. So please uh, be respectful of the time. You're going to have uh, three minutes each for concluding remarks. Okay. And uh, Ellie, you will go first. Can you hear me? Very good. This is, as I said, once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. I strongly believe that this is the best deal we could get. Uh, I, I wish and I'm concerned that we will not have to deal with, um, I would say, terror in the future, but I want to remind one thing. Every few years, we have to deal with terror uh, actions in this uh, land. Again, it started in 1920, 1921, 1937, 1936, to 1939, every few years we have a kind of a conflict and it is not going to change. We have those settlers who live in Judea and Samaria. They are part of us. They, are not go they go nowhere. Uh, we tried it many times. And the only possible situation, in my point of view, is the deal of the century. I don't see otherwise. We don't go into a one-state solution. 
Uh, and don't forget one more thing. I may be evil by saying so, but we tried this so many years and we meet again and again and again and again since the Oslo Accords and nothing really changed. Now, you wanted, to, you wanted me to refer to the Palestinians. For me, it is very simple. And I met a lot of Palestinians uh, in the last years. The Palestinians speak in English about the need of peace in international forums about peace, but when it goes into, Arab, into Arabic, it moves into a jihad. It is very simple as far as we see it. The Palestinians want the one-state solution from the other side. Uh, of course, we strongly oppose it, and I strongly believe that it depends only on us, as much as it, it, it was depends in 1948, in 1981, in 1967, it depends only on us. Uh, that's it, more or less. Thank you so much. And Chuck, concluding remarks? First, I find uh, it quite remarkable. The whole world is focused on this issue. It's one of the number one issues on the uh, international agenda at the moment. The people of Israel are uninterested. 4% of the public in a recent poll thinks it's a top priority. The real reason that this is being done is not a one-time opportunity. It's really being driven by uh, domestic politics, initially in the U.S. and Israel, and today in Israel. I call it annexation for exoneration. This is part of the prime minister's ongoing drive to divert attention from his legal and political troubles. It's not really about Israel's future. There is no deal of the century. Even the, uh, the president has backed off from the move. And as I said before, it is increasingly likely that Mr. Biden will be elected. I think there is something that has to be emphasized and re-emphasized. There has been an absolute collapse in support for Israel on the Democratic side of the American political camp in the last two years. Now, I don't care Democratic, Republican. Israel must be a bipartisan issue. The relationship with the United States is one of the fundamental pillars of Israel's national security. It is questionable whether we can even survive as a state today without the United States. Uh, I regret that people who are advocating the other position are playing around with one of our foremost, screwing around with one of our foremost national security considerations. Mr. Biden has already come out strongly against it. I don't know how many of you are really familiar up close with the fury, the pent up fury on the Democratic side, which is waiting for the opportunity for payback. Now, again, it's not a matter of Democrat or Republican. We have to maintain overwhelming support on both sides. It is quite likely that Mr. Biden will walk back from this. We will probably face um, pressures for cuts to cut the support for Israel in any event unrelated to this because of American financial uh, constraints today. This, of course, will make it much worse. We are shooting ourselves in the feet across the board. There is only, I was going to say, one, two players who benefit from this, Iran and Hezbollah. We shouldn't be doing this. What we should be doing is preserving the conditions for a two-state solution if and when it can happen. It's not this year, and it's probably not for a good few years, 
but we have to preserve Israel's long-term character as a Jewish and democratic state. This makes it that much harder to reach a two-state solution. It may make it impossible. It's hard to say when the final nail in the coffin is driven in, but if we're not there yet, we're getting very, very close. And I'll just make one last comment. Um, it is typical of our times and of the nature of political discourse in in the country that uh, Eli found it necessary to say what he did about commanders for Israeli security. I am very happy to be a member of this organization. It is 300 people who are brigadier generals and up. We have all given our uh, careers to Israel's security. There are the degree of expertise and knowledge there is something which shouldn't be disparaged. It's actually something that we could be complimented on. All right. Thank you both so much. Um, maybe neither of you heard something new, but this I heard a lot of new things. I'm leaving this conversation really asking myself, is it, is it the deal of the century? Is it now or never for two states? Or is this not the time we're shooting ourselves in the feet and we just need to focus on preserving the conditions for future two-state solution? Um, but I think there are also other questions uh, that we should be considering. Are there alternative solutions? Maybe that's something we can discuss in the Q&A. Um, so Q&A time. Shanna is going to run that. Before we enter, I just want to encourage you to, if you want, if you feel comfortable, before you ask your question, say something that you learned that was new for you, something that you hadn't considered before and maybe is on the other side of the debate. Take it away, Shannon. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you, Michelle. You did such a concise job wrapping up the sentiments of each of our two participants. And there are a few questions that we have here. I'm going to get to them in the chat. Oh, wow. We have quite a few. So I am going to start with a question from... Rabbi Feldman, I'm going to hold your question because I think I should get to the people before I get to your question. The people. Um, a question from Mark Kale or Keel. Question for Ellie and Mark. You can uh, you can sit, state your name when I'm finished in in case I botched it up. Question for Ellie and maybe also for Chuck. So we'll start with Ellie and please keep it tight, Ellie. We don't have a lot of time. Israel's policy has always been direct negotiations, no imposed solutions, defensible borders. The current annexation policy violates all of these principles. Why now? And how can annexation, and how can annexing all the settlements possibly avoid the eventual disenfranchisement of the Palestinian population in the remaining areas? which will be isolated enclaves and unlikely to ever become a viable independent country. So I'm trying to find the most succinct question here. And it basically says that we're violating some policy that Israel has been proud of in the past. Why now, if it means that Palestinian, the Palestinian population might be at risk of becoming disenfranchised? Ellie, you can start there, and Chuck, you can finish if you have something else. Why now? The answer is very simple. We have the deal of the century. We have a very friendly administration in the United States. 
we have a very unique and rare international situation of a weak international community that enables us to do it. Now, regarding confrontation, as I said, it doesn't matter what Israel will do. In every few years, because the Palestinians don't accept our existence in the region, we are going into a, we are going into a confrontation. Now, in that regard, I want to remind one more thing about it. Before the Americans moved the American embassy, we were said that, okay, we are going into a confrontation, into a riot. It never happened. Uh, before uh, the recognition of the Golan Heights, the same story. Now, I do not ignore that. Of course, I know we, it can lead into a confrontation, but it doesn't matter. In every four years, we will go into a confrontation. Great, Chuck. Thank you so much for that for that answer. Chuck, would you like to uh, give a response? So we are doomed to a confrontation every two years, so we can do whatever we want. Uh, just play roulette. It's a crapshoot. I don't think so. I think wise statesmen, A, don't behave that way. And more importantly, they try to shape history and not be the victims of history. Ellie correctly pointed out 1929, 1937, and various other dates in the course of our history. Yeah, we've got a problem. The Palestinians are a very tough adversary. I agree. We have a state today. We've had a state for over 70 years. We are the strongest state in the region. Stop scaring us. As a matter of fact, the measures that you are advocating are exactly the ones which are going to bring on the conflict. We've had years now of relative calm, relative. So you want to undermine that whether it's in the West Bank itself, whether it's you want to force Hamas to do something, you want to potentially force Hezbollah and Iran, Iran in Syria to, to hit us, and let the dice fall where they may. Uh, I think we have to shape our history. We have to determine, decide what kind of country we want to be. And if we agree in this case, so you and I and others, that we want a Jewish and democratic Israel, then how in God's name do we take steps that do exactly the opposite? You can keep speaking of the deal of the century, of a unique opportunity. It isn't there, Eli. It wasn't there to begin with. It's certainly not there today. We saw that I mean, if there's one reason that this hasn't happened, it's because the Trump administration called it, called on it. Okay, thank you. Moving on to the next question, we have a question from Natalie. Um, she says, my question is for Chuck. What is the problem with a binational state? Why can't we all live together and get along? I'm confused. That was wow. something she responded to uh, earlier in your statement. A binational, a binational state means that today, not in the future, today, if you take the uh, population of the, the entire area between the Mediterranean and the Jordan River, in other words, Gaza, Israel, West Bank, there is already a Palestinian majority. So we, see, we speak to cease to be a uh, primarily Jewish country. If you want to just take the West Bank and, uh, and Israel, the ratio is 60-40. 60% Jewish, 40% not Jewish. I don't know any definition uh, of Zionism, which calls or which would accept 60 40. 
Um, it doesn't have to be. We never said the Zionist movement never said 100% Jewish. We always knew that there would be a Arab minority. And in Israel's 67 borders, it's about 80-20, 78-22, uh, maybe to be more precise. That preserves our Jewish character for the long term, whereas the binational state ensures today that we cease to be a majority Jewish state, or of course we don't have to give the Palestinians the right to vote, and we can cease to be a democracy. If you want to know what binational states look like in the Middle East, then just look no further, look at Syria and Iraq, which were torn apart, rent, devastated by a binational conflict, where it was actually between two different Muslim groups. In Syria, it led, led to a half a million people killed. In Iraq, maybe the numbers weren't quite as horrific, but also, is that really the future we want to commit ourselves to? Thank you for answering that question succinctly. Next, if the annexation goes through, would Israel take in and give citizenship to the Palestinians in the annexed territory? I think we'll have Ellie begin with that. And um, Chuck, you can weigh in there after as well. Yeah, there are two possibilities. One is that they will be given a citizenship, and the second that they would vote into the Palestinian Authority uh, institutions. I tell you the truth, I don't know where it goes because we don't know yet uh, how many percentage of the territory we are going to apply the Israeli law, but this is an open question. Uh, of course, my belief, my personal belief, is that the Palestinians should vote into the Palestinian Authority institutions. Chuck, is there anything you wanted to add? Yeah, I mean, Ellie's right. There are two possibilities. Uh, yes, they can either vote in for the Knesset, and that brings up the option that I was talking about before, that we cease to be a uh, predominantly Jewish state. Of course, they can vote for their institutions, uh, for Palestinian institutions. That's separate and unequal. That was struck down by the American Supreme Court a few decades ago. I don't think that's what we want to bring upon ourselves. So let's try and reach a solution which achieves our national aspirations and Palestinian national aspirations. Thank you. Um, a, a question from Aaron Zemelman. Question for Ellie. How do you understand the phenomenon of veteran members of the Israeli security establishment taking stances against conventional right-wing policies? How do you explain the growing tension between army veterans and Bibi's Likud? For me, it is very simple. We are speaking about two different groups as part of the Israeli society. The group that already mentioned uh, of those of what we call Ahusal, I don't know how to explain it in uh, in Hebrew, but uh, the veterans of this country used to to control or to govern the country until 1977. Those commanders for the for Israel, most of them belong to this group, who lost their hegemony of the public. I mean, until 1977, they used to win in the election and to promote their ideology. Since 1977, it is very difficult for them to win. Now, because of their ideology has been lost, they're criticizing Netanyahu. For us, it is very simple. We're speaking about two different narratives, two different ideologies, 
Uh, and I want to emphasize one, one more thing. Almost all their advices since the 1990s was a complete failure. The disengagement was one of it. Uh, not to mention, of course, the Oslo Accords, not to mention uh, giving up the Golan Heights. And therefore, as far as I see it, we have a complete uh, disagreement. And for us, it is very simple. They cannot beat us in the ballot box. And therefore, they are using, and of course, it is legit because Israel is a democracy. This is part of the dialogue. They, of course, use their, I would say, ranks in order to criticize us. Okay. Uh, I'd, like to, I'd like to make a comment about that. Okay. Ellie mm-hmm. mentioned 1977. I'm not very good in math, but I think that was 43 years ago. And we're still hearing about the, the old guard still being in power. No, sorry. Uh, unfortunately, Likud has been in power for most of the period since then. The reason that most of the defense establishment is opposed And by the way, we've made mistakes. Of course we have. Who hasn't? The reason that most of the defense establishment is so overwhelmingly against it is because they actually happen to, to uh, address the issues on their merits, on the basis of the fact, looking at the hard truths as they are directly at them, and their decades of expertise has led them to their conclusion. It's not a matter of a nefarious deep state. Thank you. This question is for Chuck. You say that there, ha- that there are 400,000 Palestinians in Area C, which we could manage integrating without losing. Yep. No, I said Area C is two to 300. Uh, Ellie correctly said about 400,000 in the West Bank as a whole, not including Jerusalem, just to okay. get the numbers there. But the, the part under the plan uh, for annexation would be about 50,000. Well, we have no idea because we don't know what the plan is. If it's all okay. at Area C, then it's between two and 300,000. If it's one square inch, then maybe it's zero, right? I don't know. Okay, so anywhere from 50 to uh, oh, 200. Not anywhere between zero and 300,000. Okay. So we could ma- the question. the question follows, which we could manage integrating without losing the Jewish majority in Israel. Your fear is that we will get pulled in to conquer the entire territory, effectively being forced to integrate a larger Palestinian population and lose the Jewish majority in Israel. But what prevents Israel from going in and doing what is needed and unilaterally pulling out again? We have not gone back into Gaza for more than what was necessary. Hey, look, no one is talking about a unilateral withdrawal from the West Bank. And although I didn't favor doing the unilateral uh, withdrawal from Gaza the way it was done, I think it should have been done as part of a negotiation with them at the time. But no one is talking about a unilateral withdrawal today from the West Bank. We're talking about a negotiated agreement, which is not possible today. So again, I say what, what I and people who have my view say is preserve the conditions for that for the future. Now, none of us have a crystal ball, right? So I don't know exactly how things are going to play out. If we make a significant move towards annexation, and quite possibly even if it starts as a very limited move, 
We don't know what the Palestinian reaction will be, or maybe it will be a Hezbollah reaction which will feed into the Palestinian reaction. And things may start gaining a momentum of their own. What starts small can end up big. Now, I don't want, even if it's just two to 300,000, not 400,000 or 500,000 or whatever, I don't want to increase, to increase the non-Jewish population of Israel at all. Because we want to have, the reason that we established Israel as Zionist state was to have an overwhelming Jewish majority. Again, not 100%. But if we're going to compromise on that, why not move back to New York or wherever? We can do that. Okay, we wanted a predominantly Jewish state. Let's not take measures which undermine that and which can get out of hand because if the terrorism really starts seriously, then Sahel has to go in to put it down. More terrorism, more violence, Sahel has to go even more. And pretty soon we could be in control of the whole territory. Okay, thank you. Uh, We have just a couple of questions left. Um, if the annexation, this is from Robbie Landau, if the annexation goes through and one day Israel needs to attack Iran over the potential of a real Iranian nuclear weapon, someone just told me I should say Iranian, not Iranian, that's too New York of me, will Israel lose support from the international community and the USA? You're assuming that we have strong international support today. Well, there was something of an international consensus on Iran. To a certain extent, there still is. We are diverting attention from that. We're putting ourselves right in the smack in the focus of international attention. If we want and we should want to get international support for maximum pressure on Iran to get Iran to make concessions, then why would we be doing what we're doing? Um, Ellie, okay. could you respond yeah, yeah. to that question as well? Yeah, yeah I, completely dis- I completely disagree. I tell you why. Because even Israel did not annex anything. In 2015, Obama went into the deal with Iran. Uh, Merkel, Macron, again, I'm working with all uh, the advisors of those people. It has nothing to do with the Israeli annexation. Right now, don't forget, even before the annexation, before the application of the Israeli law, the Europeans is still in favor of the agreement with Iran. The Europeans still against any Israeli attack in Iran, so it doesn't matter. Moreover, Netanyahu was the only one who was unable to convince Trump about the bad deal with Iran. So, in fact, it's irrelevant as far as we see it. Well, it makes the situation worse. And just by the way, the 2015 deal, most of the Israeli defense establishment, including the chief of staff at the time, considered to be the best of the bad options that were available to to us, to the Americans at the time. Uh, I, for one, thought that was the case at the time, and I still think so. Okay, I want to add, I want to add one more uh, comment about it. In 2015, when Netanyahu went to the Congress in order to convince the Congress members that this is a very bad deal. The Commanders for, for Israel was one of the organizations who were very critical towards Netanyahu. They said, and I quote, it is impossible to change Obama's attitude. Only two years later, Netanyahu was able to convince Trump. So it means that we can change reality. It depends on us. In this case, we changed it for the worse. Uh, I disagree. 
crazy. Okay, we, we have one question, one more question here. This nepotism, this comes from my mom. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, her question is, Chuck, if you admit that Palestinians have historically not been willing to negotiate and have rejected many solutions, what then should we never annex? Uh, do we just wait forever? Um, how do we move things forward? Look, I, let, me, let me tell you a quick personal story. I uh, was a young second lieutenant in November 1977. If you had said to me at the time that the president of the state of Egypt, the Republic of Egypt, the Arab Republic of Egypt, was going to be coming to Israel a week later uh, to Jerusalem, to the Knesset, I would have really wanted to know what you were smoking because uh, it would have been some pretty powerful stuff. I don't know if and when we are going to reach a peace agreement with the Palestinians. I do know that what we are doing of our own volition is preventing that possibility from ever happening. There already is a one-state reality, a binational state reality, I believe there are some very wise people who disagree with me on this. I think we can still separate, that there is still time to separate. Not unilateral, unilateral disengagement based on very solid, responsible security considerations. What we have to do for the moment, since we can't do that now, is preserve the conditions and shape our history. Maybe we won't get get there. But we have to do everything we can so that maybe if and when someday there is a Palestinian Sadat, or by the way, the, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman, by the way, the guy's gotten some bad press in the last couple of years, right? People forget that just two years ago, he came out. This is the crown prince of the keeper of the holy places, the heart of Islam. And he recognized Israel's right to exist as a Jewish state in Israel, okay? I think hope runs eternal. Let's not kill it. Thank you. Um, Last question of the night from Rabbi Jonathan Feldman, then we're going to have closing remarks. My question is to Chuck, um, and it has to do with the residents of Yehuda and Shamron, referred to as the settlers. The narrative is that the settlers in the West Bank or Judea and Samaria in English are an impediment to peace. If Israel has a 20% Arab population, why couldn't the Palestinian state have a 20% Jewish population? The sad part is that this cannot even be considered as part of the discussion. That's one of those things which are absolutely true and simply irrelevant. That's all. That's the reality. We live in a really tough part of the world. And if you want to pursue absolute justice, then I agree. Uh, By the way, the Palestinians say that if Jews want to live uh, in in Palestine, they can do so not as um, in in Israeli-controlled enclaves, but as citizens of a Palestinian state. Look, I don't... Many of the settlers went there for honorable uh, ideological reasons. The overwhelming majority went there for purely economic reasons. 
so they benefited once because they got incredible economic incentives at the time. And now if and when they are resettled in Israel, they will get so a second time. So I don't really feel so sorry. And again, it's not uprooting. It's moving people a few kilometers. They're Israeli citizens. They speak Hebrew. They know they, they live, breathe Israel. Uh, most of the people in the audience don't remember. I remember, uh, I think it was November 1993, the heart of the, the height of the Russian Aliyah. We were absorbing 30,000 Russians a month who didn't speak the language, didn't have jobs, didn't have where to live. We can absorb some of our own people. There's an, a, an intentional design to present this as some sort of horrible thing. It isn't. It's certainly not pleasant. It's not horrible. The alternative is the end of a Jewish and democratic Israel. Between those two options, some unpleasantness and that, I know where my decision is. Thank you so much. Michelle is going to make some brief concluding remarks, and I'm going to wrap up the evening. Thank you so much. Um, I want to thank everyone for participating. Amazing questions. Chuck and Ellie, Thank you so much. I, you are both coming from such a place of deep concern and love. Thank you both for putting so much into making our country wonderful and safe. Um, th my bias is as a conflict resolution person. I believe in talking and talking to people that you don't know. And I want to share with you where my hope comes from. I make an effort to try to talk to young Palestinians or wherever, however I can. And what I've been finding in my conversations is that there's hope for creativity. When you really get down to it and talk to people and form relationships, our interests are not as, uh, not as at odds as we might think. So I would encourage everyone to try to talk to people um, who you don't normally get to talk with and start thinking outside of the box it's not necessarily one, one state, two state, ten states there. There might be other creative solutions out there. So um, that's my charge to all of you. Start having some interesting creative conversations with people you don't normally talk to. That's what gives me hope. Thank you all. Thank you. Um, once again, this is the Sunset Series. You're joining us for the Sunset Series. We do this on Monday evenings. Just about every Monday evening, we try to do it live and in person at the Esperanto Bar. Unfortunately, with the coronavirus, we wanted that everyone would be safe and healthy and get to enjoy this debate and exercise their democracy from a safe place. Thank you to everyone. I also wanted to make a note that Rabbi Feldman does an excellent podcast that he publishes where he will also be publishing tonight's event, the audio from tonight's event, in case anyone wants to go back and listen again. And hold on one moment. Um, and uh, Jewish, matter, Jewish Matters, and it's on uh, Spotify, Apple, and Google. So you can find it there, Jewish Matters. And uh, within a day, this should be up there. So Rabbi Feldman is going to be posting this in case anyone would like to listen back. He also does a great series on important leaders and people who made an impact on the Jewish people and on Israel. It's excellent. He gets very enthusiastic about it. And I am also running a podcast on the top Israel news stories of the day. It's, awesome. it's, it's about 10 minutes long, and I started it three weeks ago. I wake up at 6 every morning to read the newspapers and give my most concise five to eight minutes of news. 
And uh, on Thursdays, I keep it nice and tight, as reporters do. And on Thursdays, I offer a special report in addition to the stories. So someone wrote in the chat um, how to find the recording. Go find the Jewish Matters podcast. And anyone who would like to be put on our email list, please uh, send me your email. I will. You can write it in the chat. I'll copy and paste it. You can also follow me. I'll put my information and the Tribe Tel Aviv information so that anyone who is looking for information can get in touch with me. I'm putting my private email address. I'm putting my Instagram handle. Alex put uh, Rabbi rabbi's uh jewish matters podcast there so that everyone can find it and um everyone get in touch if you would like to be put on our mailing list let me know follow us on facebook follow us on instagram and uh ellie thank you so much for doing this in english and chuck thank you for participating and keeping it nice and tight you guys are great uh rabbi feldman anything more from you You're on mute, Rabbi. Rabbi. Thank you, Shanna. You're welcome. Stay tuned for uh, the next, uh, we'll be sending out information on the next Sunset Series. Okay, great. Rabbi Feldman, don't close the chat yet. Don't close out yet because some people are sending us their